We're happy to have this episode sponsored by Real Mushrooms. You probably already know about some of the great benefits of adding mushrooms to your diet, like better sleep, greater mental clarity, and a stronger immune system, but not all mushroom products are equal. Real Mushrooms is the real deal. Many mushroom companies harvest the mushroom and the grain it's growing on. Real Mushrooms products contain no grains or starch fillers. They're organic, cultivated naturally, and third-party verified for beta-glucans, the compound that makes them so valuable as a supplement. They even have a science and medical team of doctors who ensure that Real Mushrooms meets the highest standards. What I personally love is how informative their website is. Have questions about what mushroom is right for you? They have a robust blog with articles ranging from women's health to what mushrooms are most beneficial to your pet. Want to boost your immune system? Have better sleep and feel more calm? Grab the link in the show notes and get 25% off of your first order. Curiously enough, acupuncture is not just sticking needles into people. It's part of a coherent and observation-based medicine that experienced practitioners of the art have handed down over the centuries. I'm Michael Max, your host and guide of Everyday Acupuncture. Listen in as we explore how you can apply the principles of this ancient medicine in your everyday life. Hey everybody, welcome back to Everyday Acupuncture. Today, I've got a good friend of mine, longtime friend from back in the Seattle days, Josh Lerner. Josh is an acupuncturist. He's an herbalist. He's got a well-rooted Qigong practice, and he is a fan of good fats. He was probably one of the first people to turn me on to uh, healthy fat with some pemmican that he made. And I want to tell you that <laughs> oh, stuff. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You remember that? It tastes oh, like yeah. deer hooves or something. Uh-huh. <laughs> But boy, does it give you an end. You know, we should maybe do a, uh, a podcast on fat at some point. Anyway, well, maybe we'll even get into this later in the show. I don't know. I'm rambling. I'm just really happy to have you here today. Josh, welcome to Everyday Acupuncture. Thank you so much, Michael. I'm just so excited to be here. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, I'm drinking tea from the teapot that you brought back from Taiwan for me 10 years ago to kind of commemorate the, uh, the full circle here coming back to uh, reconnecting after working together in Seattle. That's you know that's great. Actually, it's kind of funny. We're broadcasting today from the brand new world headquarters of Yongkong Chinese Medicine Clinic in its brand new location. Uh, for those of you that don't know, Josh and I worked together at the Yongkong location in Seattle, where we indeed did drink a lot of tea. Yes, we did. Maybe we'll have to do a tea podcast at some point too. That might be good. But today, the topic orthopedic acupuncture. And uh, Josh, I'm going to let you describe what orthopedic acupuncture it is and, and what you do with that. And then we're going to jump into some questions. Sure. So my focus clinically for the last about 10 years or so, I've been in practice for about 15, yeah, 15 years. Uh, I focus a lot on orthopedic conditions and pain, um, sports injuries, traumatic injury. And what that means is the, the majority of the patients that I see and the majority of the patients who get referred to me and come seek me out have some kind of orthopedic condition. And so a lot of my time is spent not just doing acupuncture, but I do a lot of manual therapy, both uh, traditional Chinese tuina, traditional Chinese uh, massage and uh, joint mobilizations, things like that. But I also do a lot of more Western flavored work. I do a lot of work with what we call trigger points, uh, motor points. I would do a lot of uh, orthopedic testing, uh, testing for joint range of motion, for uh, manual muscle testing in the clinic, uh, tests to see if pain is being caused by a joint inflammation or a, a restriction in a vertebral segment or if it's a tendon irritation, things like that. And so I really, I do a variety of things in each treatment that I do usually is some combination of acupuncture and manual work and maybe some either externally applied herbs, internally applied herbs, exercise recommendations, things like that. So, it, I mean, it sounds like a very manual hands-on. I mean, how much of your assessment 
is actually by touching and moving and, and, and seeing what's going on in, in that way? Quite a bit, depending on the, the patient and the condition. But for all patients, I start the same with my intake, and that is I'll spend anywhere from a half an hour to an hour just talking to them first. Uh, I do the standard kind of intake that we all do as acupuncturists. The, you know, my, my grounding is in a traditional Chinese medicine uh, style of clinical reasoning. So I ask just a gazillion questions, not just about people's main complaint, but about their digestion, their sleep, their emotions, all that stuff. And I do all of that first. So the first visit sometimes is 45 minutes of me just asking questions to the patient, followed by maybe you know, some of the physical exam. But then other, other than that, I do a lot of postural assessment, kind of having people just stand or do a few basic movements while I'm watching how they're moving how their joints are moving. I do a lot of hands-on palpating or feeling individual muscles, individual joints, taking one muscle and trying to find, you know, if there's one particular set of fibers within the muscle that are the most sensitive, lots of different things. I'll feel the pulse also and I feel the abdomen sometimes, but there's a significant amount of hands-on stuff that I do. You know, this is, uh, I'm just reminded here when you were talking about doing your intakes and, and you ask a gazillion questions, which really is the way I think most of us are trained. It can be really, I think, confusing for patients that are coming in the first time because they're coming in because their elbow hurts. Right. And, and here we are, we want to know about their sleep, we want to know about their poop, we want to know about how they digest, all that kind of stuff. And it's, you know, it's a little bit baffling, I think, to folks at first that we're looking to get this really sort of broad sense of who they are beyond the problem that they come in with. It's really fascinating. And I found that even people who come in with just like, you know, they just hurt their elbow. You know, I work with, or I I train at a a mixed martial arts gym and I do a lot of grappling and Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And so guys will come, they've got like their elbow tweaked from an arm bar or something. So they come to see me. That's the problem that they have they think they're otherwise, they don't have any problems. But I found that if I set the expectation when they first come to see me, so we're going to talk about the elbow, I'm going to ask you all these questions, I'm going to do some tests, but I'm also going to, I want to get a feel for everything else going on in your life and everything else that's happened to you, because that will all impact how we do the treatment and how you're going to respond. I found that actually most people are really fascinated by all the questions that I ask that have nothing to do with their symptom. Because I think at some level, even people who've never been to an acupuncturist, kind of in the back of their head, they, they kind of know that everything is, is maybe important. And just no one has kind of asked them questions or framed, framed that information in a way that makes sense to them. But for the most part, when I'm done asking all these questions, people are just kind of like, wow, I, I, you know, no one's ever asked me these questions before. And I get very few cases where people are like, why are you asking me these questions? Even though I keep expecting that, you know. I, uh, I also have the experience of, the, I guess in some ways, the more questions I ask, the more I get to know who this person is. Because while I'm interested in helping their knee or their elbow or, you know, whatever they're, they're coming in with, what I'm really interested in is helping them. Exactly. And they're much more than just their knee or their elbow. Yeah. And it's, and very often... Outside of like really uh, kind of uncontrollable traumatic injuries, there's very often something in their health history that has predisposed them to developing this condition. Or, you know, it could be, and actually I see this a lot with athletes who are in their like 30s or 40s who were very athletic when they were young and they uh, maybe they had really poor dietary habits when they're young. And when you're in your 20s, you can get away with a lot. And then all of a sudden, they're in their 30s and 40s. They're doing the exact same thing they've always done. They're training the way they've always trained. They're eating the way they've always eaten without any problems. And all of a sudden, they start getting these – they start accumulating all these little injuries. And as far as they're concerned, it's just like I just just tweaked my elbow again or it's like I can't quite get my knee to ever recover anymore. And it's it's really – all this other stuff going on in their life that's accumulating and now their body's at the point where they can't recover as, as quick as they could when they were in their 20s. You know, when you're in your 20s, your body's kind of dumb. It can take a lot of abuse. <laughs> I wouldn't know anything about that. 
I'm sure you wouldn't, and I didn't mean to imply anything about you yourself. And of course, I'm also not at all in that uh, in that state myself. But that interview, that long interview of, all, all, of asking all these questions, can really be helpful in increasing their overall well-being by giving them all of a sudden the the experience of seeing, oh, actually, everything that I that I do is potentially related in the way that I've been conducting myself and eating and not resting and all that stuff. So it's, uh, yeah, it's really, it can be kind of a revelation for a lot of people. Yeah. You know, it, it reminds me and I, I see, I, I, maybe cause I'm grappling with this myself at the moment. So I kind of see it in my clinical work, but there's this funny thing where we get good at something or, or there's a problem that we're looking to solve and we successfully solve that problem. And so, of course, whenever the problem comes up again, we go to the thing that successfully solved it. Right. The problem is things keep changing. Well, not the problem, but the, but the truth is things keep changing. And so the thing that worked at one point, at some point, will either not work so well or it will actually be the source of our next set of problems. Right. And yet it's so difficult to give up that, ah, yeah, I've got this handled. I know how to do this. Exactly. Uh, there's this definite sense of kind of evolution with a lot of these things where whatever, you know, so speaking as a practitioner going through that, there's a sense of there's certain lessons that you kind of have to learn at a certain point and certain skills you have to develop. And then once you get them, like you're not allowed to rest there. And those same experiences or skills are now potentially, you know, a liability if you start relying on them too much. And so you get uh, the experience over and over of having a patient come in again who has the same thing that you just learned how to treat or you feel like you just finally got a handle on. They look like all the other patients you've had who've been like that. And then now all of a sudden all the stuff that you know how to do and that you rely on so much, it doesn't work. And you have to expand what you're doing. Uh, and you have to kind of get out of your comfort zone again. The same thing happens with patients. They're used to doing certain things a certain way. They feel like they've got a handle on like their physical activity or how they handle their symptoms or whatever it is. And then all of a sudden, they, they're faced with something, some other situation where their normal set of skills all of a sudden that they've been relying on, they don't work anymore. And they have to do something else. I suspect it really helps to be able to dial in that wider perspective then yes and somehow have the awareness to catch what we're missing that's the rub isn't it you know it is i I ran into a quote the other day which i'm going to slaughter because you know i i I like seeing but i don't memorize them i just get the gist of them but it was something to the effect of you can't learn what you think you already know yes and i think that's related to the idea that you don't know what you don't know. Right. Donald Rumsfeld's uh, Unknown Unknowns. <laughs> oh, man, those were the days, weren't they? Yeah, <laughs> those were certainly days. <laughs> so I want to run this question by you because this is a question people ask all the time. Why is acupuncture so dang good at treating pain? I mean, we know it's good for pain. In fact, many people believe acupuncture is only good for pain. We know it actually treats a whole lot of other things and treats it quite well. Why is acupuncture so good at treating conditions of pain? I think there are several reasons, or the main reason has several aspects, and that is mainly that acupuncture is really functioning on a bunch of different levels at once. It's not functioning only at the kind of chemical level, the way that a pain-killing drug would be. It is functioning at that level by encouraging the release of uh, endorphins and things like that. And in the case of, say, pain coming from uh, some type of problem in a muscle, whether it's a trigger point or something like that, it's changing the, the biochemical milieu of the area. And it's also changing circulation in the area, right? It's increasing circulation to help change the the chemistry of the area. So there's that aspect of it. There are the specific aspects of what happens mechanically to the body when you insert the needle into it. So for instance, when you insert a needle into an acupuncture point or into a dysfunctional muscle that's painful, 
you are, depending on how you manipulate the needle, you are stimulating the connective tissue around the area. You are physically engaging the fascia, the connective tissue. And if you manipulate the needle in certain ways, you're stretching it in certain ways. And because of the physical qualities of connective tissue, that physical stretching of it actually creates electrical signals that then travel through the body. So it's working at that level. There's also the level of, again, going back to muscles in particular, where if there's a, a contraction in a muscle, inserting the needle into that contracted area or near it can help the contraction to relax. And that's working at kind of a more of a neurological level. There are also kind of more systemic whole body effects of inserting needle into someone, as, as you know, and as anyone who's had acupuncture knows, if you just insert a few needles into someone, even, they don't, even if they're not going in very deep, there is an immediate shift in the nervous system. There's a, a change of the balance between sympathetic and parasympathetic tone. It tends to restore homeostasis there. So for most people, they tend to be in a kind of a constant low-level fight-or-flight response, just dealing with modern life most of the time. That's the sympathetic half of the nervous system that gets you into that fight-or-flight response. Whereas the parasympathetic half is that kind of sleep and heal and digest your food state. And those two are kind of a yin and yang aspect of our autonomic nervous system. And for most people, if they're in that sympathetic fight or flight response most of the time, you put just a few needles in and there's within usually a minute, if not sooner, there's this balancing of those two, which for most people means they're going to become more parasympathetic. You know, you put the needle in and immediately their stomach starts growling. Yeah, almost all the time, I take it as such a good sign that they're beginning to move out of that fight and flight and more into that rest and restore. Exactly. And it's, um, and so it's, it's a bunch of these different levels at acupuncture. That's just talking about it from a few of the kind of physiological kind of Western ideas about how acupuncture works. So you've got that neurological change. You've got the, the kind of neuromuscular changes that can happen. There is the release of endorphins. Uh, there is the effect on the connective tissue and how that also resets some of the information going through the body in relation to – you've got all these other sensors embedded in the connective tissue that are being also affected by the, the needles. So it's, it's a really kind of wide-ranging set of effects that one simple needle can have. And that's not even going into the, the traditional Chinese explanation of what's happening with acupuncture. Uh, but especially in terms of our patients here in the West, I think being able to explain to them in these more Western terms, especially the, for the people who are either a little kind of sketched out or who don't quite understand what we're doing or why we're doing it, um, understanding all those different layers can really be helpful in, in helping people have a sense of you know, why they would want to do this and a sense of comfort with the treatment. Yeah. Well, and it's, I mean, you explain it really clearly. I mean, we use terms in Chinese medicine like qi. We're opening the qi or freeing the qi or unblocking it. But, but qi, is, qi is basically, well, you know some Chinese. Yeah. You know, it's basically untranslatable into English. It really is. And it's, you know, I found it's interesting using you know, going back and forth between using the vocabulary of traditional Chinese medicine with patients versus using uh, the vocabulary of Western medicine is really fascinating because there's some patients who really resonate much more with the traditional Chinese explanation. And, you know, you can make the argument that's because it's kind of more, you know, mystical and in, in modern uh, or in, in kind of popular views. But I think it's really that the the advantage to the traditional Chinese vocabulary is that because it is based more on the same vocabulary that you'd use to describe just the natural world around you, right? We talk about dampness, we talk about heat and cold and all these other things that don't really get talked about as much in Western medicine, but they're things that you have a visceral experience of every day of your life, right? And so the, the language in Chinese medicine in some, for some patients, is much more accessible because it's like, it's it's kind of more poetic, but it's more, um, it, it kind of taps into your basic everyday experience. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, 
you know, if it's not used well, it can be a barrier for a lot of patients. And being able to describe things from the, the Western point of view, especially if you're then, you know, talking with or having a relationship with patients, doctors or physical therapists or other people that you're sharing the care with, the Western explanations can really be very, very helpful, both because then the patient can have more of a sense of trust that you know what you're talking about as far as they're concerned, right? If they're used to only hearing about things from you know, their doctor or their physical therapist or their chiropractor. Uh, but also gives you more options for interacting with their other providers and other medical uh, providers. Right, because most people speak that language of Western medicine. And, you know, really, bec- those of us that have grown up in the West, it's more satisfying to have these explanations. This is stuff that 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 we understand or at least we think we understand it, it at the very least it's it's in the common language yeah and it's it's also it's very helpful in terms of developing a, a good relationship with the patient that patients feel like their practitioner understands their story the story of not just of their life but also what's happening with their particular set of symptoms and understanding the language of Western medicine allows you to kind of tell the story back to the patient of what's happening with them in a way that makes sense. And having that sense of a story, having a sense that they're all these terms that their doctors told them or that their chiropractors told them or whoever it is that you as a practitioner also understand those terms and can put them into a story that makes sense. And then at the same time, you can use a different set of vocabulary with traditional Chinese medicine and basically tell the same story, but just using a different set of ideas and have both of them make sense to the patient. And it's very, very helpful for them because often the, the biggest problem that patients have isn't the symptom, the actual pain or dysfunction from the symptom, but it's this anxiety about, you know, what does this mean to me? How does this fit into my story? Am I going to be this way the rest of my life? Is this something, is there some other significance to this that is really the cause for much greater anxiety? And if you can, you can use your vocabulary to kind of create a, a helpful story, then that's, is hugely important, I think. I have seen something really, really similar uh, I'll often have patients come in. I think <clears throat> many people in our field have patients like this. They've got something going on. They don't know what it is. They've been through all kinds of tests, and they're really frustrated because all the tests come back clean. They don't find anything. And they just want to know. I mean, I've had patients that said, you know, I wish they'd just find cancer because then we could do something about it. Right. And, and that, that sense of, of anxiety, fear of the future, not sure what's going on, they just want to know. There's this aspect of just wanting to know that seems so vitally important. Yeah, and it's, it's hugely important. It can also at times be a stumbling block because, the, and as you know, trying to give patients a very clear story when you're really not sure yourself and no one has been sure is, you know, you also run the risk of kind of giving them a, a false sense of hope or security. It might be this kind of temporary sense of relief that finally someone understands what's going on with me. And if you actually do understand and you can treat them and they get better, then great. But it's, uh, it's also, it's kind of a double-edged sword because if you, if you really understand the need for that type of story, you understand the vocabulary and how to explain things to a patient. Uh, if you're not careful, you can also kind of give them this kind of false sense of, yeah, I understand everything's going to be fine. And then it, you may also still be wrong. So it's, uh, so also I found that keeping that, giving patients the idea that this is one of the possible explanations here. Here's a particular story that might explain what's happening to you. And this is how I'm going to act based on the story, but this might not be it. And so even more than just having the story, the explanation themselves, having this relationship where the patient feels like you really have their best interest in mind and that you're not just trying to just kind of make them feel better about what's going on. And that even if you're wrong, that you'll be able to admit it 
and kind of work with the patient to try to continue figuring out what's actually going on. Uh, it's kind of like, you know, when you go see certain types of practitioners, you can be overwhelmed by how confident they are in the story that they're telling you what they think is going on. But it can become, if that's overwhelming or if it's done too much, almost like they're just more pushing an agenda than actually trying to be as kind of honest and clear with you as they can. And so that's a, it's a fascinating uh, thing that I've noticed over and over again with practitioners that I've seen that I've gone to and uh, working in a student clinic and seeing students trying to develop their relationship with their patients in the student clinic. And like, how do you start by trying to develop a good relationship with the patient? And that's always a tendency to try to be this more of a kind of an authoritarian figure who knows all the answers. Yeah, it's just a very interesting dynamic to me. Yeah. Well, we're so used to doctors having the answers and we believe and expect our healthcare providers to have the answers. Sometimes though, you know, the situation is not that simple because if it was that simple, they wouldn't see us in the first place. Exactly. So, you know, sometimes it's not that I know what's going on. I might have some idea. Well, hopefully I've got some ideas. They may or may not be right. You start treatment going along a particular pathway, and based on the feedback you get, you decide how you're doing it. I find it's often that, yes, you know what? We're kind of lost in the dark here. But here's the good news. I've got a flashlight. Right. But the flashlight can only illuminate certain aspects at a time. And so you get into this thing of... You know, you want help, but a shotgun approach is the same as closing your eyes and throwing darts. Right. So you need to take this focused view, but the focused view, you know, if you're right, you're really going to bring, you're really going to get some traction on it. But if you're not right, all you're going to find out is that you're not right. Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting point because, and this certainly ties in uh, very closely with dealing with orthopedic problems. I found that being able to understand the value of both a more shotgun approach and a much more like laser-like focus on a particular set of tissues or whatever it is can be very helpful because you can use a shotgun approach at times, especially if you're not really sure about exactly what's going on. So for instance, uh, a lot of the Twena that I do and that I, I teach at uh, the Seattle Institute of Oriental Medicine at Seattle, the basic levels of it are, in a sense, kind of a shotgun manual approach. There's certain protocols that you can do to someone's, for someone's back or for their upper body, their neck or their legs that are generally really helpful for the vast majority of people, kind of regardless of what they have going on, as long as you know, the, they don't have some really severe traumatic injury like a broken bone or something. And so, in a sense, you could say that's a shotgun approach, and it can be really helpful, but it's not, if they have a very specific problem going on, it's not going to address it. Now, if you have a very, very specific approach, a laser-like focus on one particular aspect of their symptom or, or their physiology, whether it's a particular uh, muscular imbalance or digestive balance or whatever, and if your treatment really is focusing on that one thing, if you're right, you know, you're going to make it better. But if you're wrong, it seems like the more focused that treatment is, the more chance you have of actually doing something to them that's going to push them off in some other direction that's going to make things even potentially worse. And I found that the, the more the, the treatment tries to encourage the body to move in a particular direction, the more important it is that you have a really clear idea of exactly what that direction is you want to move to. Whereas a lot of the approaches that whether you call it more of a shotgun approach or more of a, a gentle approach that is just generally encouraging homeostasis, something that's generally encouraging the body to gently restore its own balance, then you, you have a little bit more leeway in how focused you, you are. You know, you're not running the same risk of potentially doing something that's going to also cause a problem. So it's just a fascinating balance to me of and a changing of, of depth of focus. I hope you've enjoyed the first half of the show. Now it's time for a word from our sponsor. That would be you. 
You could support the effort here by popping over to everydayacupuncturepodcast.com and click on the link to support the show and leave a few dollars that will help to keep some inspiration in the teacup. You know, we run on only the finest oolong and poorer teas here at Everyday Acupuncture Podcast Central. No point in going all NPR pledge drive here to remind you that teas like that don't come cheaply. Just know that if you like the show, you can express your appreciation for these interviews with a small donation. As always, I love to get your feedback and ideas for future shows, so send those along too. Thanks again for listening, and now on to the second half of the show. This brings up a question for me. I've heard, of course, when people have pain, they want it to go away, ideally completely in one treatment. And, and I've heard different practitioners have different takes on this. So I want to ask you, I, I've heard people that say, yeah, I want to give them a treatment. I want the pain to be gone, like, you know, history gone. And I've met other practitioners, and I think this speaks to the homeostasis that you were just talking about. They want to get the body moving in the direction that the body needs to be moving. We don't always know what that is, but the body knows what it is, right? So if we can encourage that homeostasis, the body will naturally, because its blueprint is, is to be able to restore and reconstruct itself. If you can get the body into homeostasis, it'll take care of it. And so these practitioners say, you know what? I want them to feel 70 to 80% better when they leave because I don't want them relying on the treatment. I want them relying on themselves. I'm curious to get your take on this. Uh, there are, as with everything, there are a, a bunch of different levels that we can kind of talk about that. At. On one hand, especially with cases of, of pain, for instance, or orthopedic problems that seem to have a relatively straightforward cause from from like my point of view. When the patient walks in, if they, um, for instance, they're a, uh, they play tennis and they've got shoulder pain, and to me it looks like they've got a particular type of weakness or problem in the rotator cuff muscles, there are things that I can do that I expect to create a, a, a immediate and significant change in their symptoms, things that I can do for them that are kind of hard for them to do for themselves. And then I give them some exercises or I give them some education and some things to do to keep that from coming back. And that's, that's kind of one model of treatment that I actually use quite a bit. But the, the really important thing long-term is to give the patient things to do, ways to think that will allow them to be able to keep themselves in that homeostasis, keep all that stuff from happening again. And then even in a broader sense, will will help to increase their own general awareness of their of their body, of their how they're interacting with the rest of their life. And so that's a much kind of a broader focus and that's something that's really aiming at increasing their own ability to kind of self-correct and to maintain that homeostasis. And that's usually a, a kind of a longer process. So to, as I'm kind of rambling a little bit there, but the, the basic idea I think is that you really need to do both. I feel like when the patient first comes to see me, if nothing else, I want there to be some change in their symptom just to give them some relief and also to give them some sense of trust in what I'm doing. And it may, take, it may take two or three treatments before that really happens. But ideally, I want to see some change immediately, even if it's not a you know, 100% cure. But the, one of the other problems is that, especially with chronic pain cases, one of the main issues that people will be in chronic pain for a long time is because the mechanism in their body that allows them to self-correct is not functioning well, right? And this, especially with things like you know, low back pain, if you have someone who has chronic low back pain and uh, maybe it's also combined with like knee issues or headaches or neck issues and you ask them to do some really basic uh, movements of like their pelvis, they have them standing up, you have them kind of try to tilt their pelvis one way or the other or when they're laying on the table, have them do certain just very, very basic movements of the lower back or their pelvis 
and they can't do even simple movements because they have no proprioception. They have no sense of where their body is in space. They have no sense of connection to the body. And when that happens, there's this feedback loop that happens where that lack of awareness leads to them moving in a way or acting in a way that's going to further cause more problems, which then leads to even more of a lack of awareness. There's a, an inhibitory relationship between the nociceptors or the nerve endings that, that send basically pain signals and what are called the mechanoreceptors, the, the nerve receptors that convey kind of neutral information about proprioception, where, where the body is in space, uh, feelings of pressure, temperature, right? So basically... The more you're in pain, the less you can accurately feel things. And then also the less that you or the 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 more you can feel things and the more awareness you have in that proprioceptive system, the less pain you will be in because those two sets of signals can't function kind of at the same time. And so the that you know, having a chronic problem, whether it's pain, you can really have that that process be that that relationship be really problematic and so it takes much longer for some patients to be able to restore that homeostasis because they don't have they've kind of temporarily lost the ability to to have their proprioception their awareness be able to kind of keep uh keep their body functioning normally right i've got a uh, friend here in the st louis area i call him a bone whisperer this guy looks at and does stuff with uh posture and structural things that's just uh it's just amazing he's got like x-ray vision and one of the things that he talks about is that the brain is not going to let us get ourselves into trouble right it's incredibly inhibitory so if there's an area that we're not inhabiting we don't have proprioception the brain is not going to let us move into that because if the brain can't see it it goes don't go there right and so there'll be these whole areas of our body, proprioception, movement, because the brain doesn't have access to it. The brain goes off limits. I don't know what's there. Exactly. And it will, it will shut down muscles that control joints in that area. And then, so then you start developing these muscle weaknesses there, which then means the rest of the body has to compensate and you end up getting a symptom that shows up far away from the body, from where the, the original problem is. You might end up with neck pain. But it's actually coming from the fact that you injured your ankle on the opposite side of your body. You've got like left-sided neck pain, but your, your right ankle that you injured years ago that never really healed. You don't have good proprioception there. The body kind of won't let you use the calf muscles to push off every time you walk. And so you end up compensating by kind of throwing your head forward a little bit every time you take a step to get some forward momentum. And then that ends up being a stiff neck. And you can focus on the neck as much as you want for years, and it's going to keep coming back because you have to deal with the issue down at the ankle. And that's, yeah, and it's just really, it's extremely common, much more common than most people realize. And it's interesting, you know, having patients who will say, like, I didn't even realize I had muscles back in this area, like you're working on someone's back, where you're looking for dysfunctional muscles like in like in the back of their shoulder girdle and you're pressing on things and there's all the stuff that's really sore but for them it's just this kind of void that they don't they're not even aware of and it's like I didn't even realize I had muscles back there where you're pressing and uh, you know if you study anatomy and everything else and you realize there are these muscles in every inch of your body and it can be a little you can kind of be taken back the first time you hear a patient say that it's like what do you mean you don't realize you had muscles here or you know what do you mean you don't realize this was even like a part of your body but it happens a lot and it's a it's a huge problem yes it it does and and it is this brings up another question a lot of times when people have let's say problems with their ankle or problems with their wrist right this is very common with carpal tunnel for example that they'll be prescribed these braces so that oh you have you, you have pain when you move well let's just make sure you don't move so much what are your thoughts about that stuff Ah, boy. I know. It's probably a can of worms, isn't it? Well, it brings up another issue. So the the issue that you just asked about was immobilizing an area that, like from the traditional Chinese perspective, we say you have to maintain a free flow of movement of of not just of the tissues, but of the energy and the blood through the area. Uh, But 
the specific thing that you asked about, like with uh, carpal tunnel, brings up a whole even more important issue for me, which is when a patient comes into the clinic and say that their their main complaint is carpal tunnel syndrome, I would say probably eight to nine times out of ten, they actually do not have carpal tunnel syndrome. What they say is, you know, even if they've been diagnosed with a doctor, they come in and they have some type of issue that's occurring somewhere from their elbow down to the hand, right? Carpal tunnel syndrome is a very specific condition that there are certain orthopedic tests for that are very easy to do, and you can tell whether or not someone has it by just doing these simple tests. Uh, but often people come in and they've got like, you know, they've got pain in their index finger or their thumb, and that's and it's just on one side, and that's all they have, and they do some type of work like this happens with, uh, I've got a lot of patients who are, for instance, um, like hairstylists, right? So they're standing in this really awkward position all day with their neck in a weird position, their, their shoulder, one shoulder is more forward than the other because they've got like a hair dryer in one hand and they're using the other hand to brush and comb and their, their whole scapula is rolled forward. And so they end up developing these symptoms down in the hand. They go to the doctor and the doctor says, oh, you've got carpal tunnel syndrome, wear this brace. The issue more, than, more often than not is coming from the neck or the shoulder girdle, either from muscles in the neck that are referring pain down into the hands, problems with nerve compression in the neck because of the poor posture, their head is always forward, and so they get, there are a bunch of different ways that you can have problems radiating down to the hand just from that. Um, the rotator cuff muscles are notorious for referring pain all the way down into the hand in different patterns or into the elbow. And so most of the time, that seems to be what's actually going on. And the cases I've had of actual carpal tunnel syndrome, although they certainly occur, they're relatively rare. And so the problem then is that people go to the doctor and the doctor says, you've got carpal tunnel syndrome, wear this brace. And so it's not only that you're immobilizing something that still needs to be able to move, but you're completely missing what the, what the actual source of their problem is. And so, so that's, to me, that's kind of the, the bigger issue. And I see the same thing with things like sciatica, with just a wide, a wide range of these common things that come into the clinic that get diagnosed often with, you know, people get diagnosed with carpal tunnel syndrome with the doctor not even, you know, touching them or doing any actual tests. They just, they hear, especially if it's a very busy clinic, they've got, you know, 10 minutes to talk to you. And so the, they just kind of use a, well, they've got something going on in the hand. It's probably carpal tunnel syndrome. So we'll just call it that. Slap a brace on it. Okay. So, you know, a lot of times people are going to their doctor or PT or, you know, and all kinds of other practitioners, and maybe they get the brace. So how is it, because I suspect you don't recommend the brace very often, how is it that your work is different from, say, a physical therapist or a chiropractor's? Well, there are certain things that are definitely going to be similar. So I... I do a lot of the same types of orthopedic tests that like a PT would do. I try to narrow down what tissues I think are involved, whether it's a muscle or a joint capsule or a ligament or um, a general kind of movement dysfunction, a coordination or proprioception function. So there's some things that are definitely going to be similar, but there are definitely some differences, both from the perspective of like a patient who's coming in to see me and from my perspective as a practitioner. And I say that, A, being married to a physical therapist, uh, and B, also having uh, worked in a physical therapy office for a year. I was actually contemplating going to school at one point and spent a year volunteering uh, once a week in a PT office. So I got to see how they do things. And also taking a lot of classes, some of which were just like 15 to 20 physical therapists and me in a class and kind of seeing how they talk about medicine and, and uh, clinical practice. And so some of the other big differences are, well, the big one is that I fundamentally am a traditional Chinese medicine practitioner, meaning that no matter how much I'm talking to the patient about their muscles and their orthopedic tests and all this other stuff, the basic framework that I'm always using to look at the patient is, you know, what's their constitution, what organs are involved, what channels are involved. And so even if I'm consciously not using that information at any given time, that's always kind of in the back of my mind. And so that's going to also mean my 
the, the questions I asked during the intake are going to be much more focused on a lot of things that, a, that most PTs aren't going to ask about, like their digestion, stuff like that. Now, a really good PT who's in a practice where they have the time and the interest to really be much more holistic will also often ask uh, questions about their patient's emotional states, uh, their digestion, stuff like that. But for the most part, it's more going to be screening for a potential problem that they need to refer out to, right? They're not going to, you know, if someone has a tendency to worry about things more than they do have a problem with, like, getting irritable all the time, as a Chinese medicine practitioner, that tells me something that's going to impact how I'm inserting needles or things like that. Whereas for a PT, that's not going to, you know, I can't imagine that being a, a huge distinction for them. Right. That would, that would be a practitioner to refer out to. Send them to a nutritionist, send them to a therapist, something like that. Exactly. Yeah. We take it as information about who the person is, and, and we can add some needles that, that address that to some degree. Exactly. And even if, they're, even if you're just addressing their, their headache or their elbow problem, you know, that tells us something about what we have to take into account to make sure that we're actually addressing all the potential factors that are influencing that. You know, but then there are, and also I, I teach patient exercises all the time. I have a whole list of different types of qigong and rehab exercises that mostly come from martial arts training that um, I teach, some of which look like PT exercises, some of which don't. But then, you know, the differences are really going to be much bigger. So the first is that I do everything myself in the clinic, whereas if you go to a PT clinic and get a treatment for a condition, very often... The, the PT themselves is going to be doing some things like doing the diagnosis and coming up with treatment planning. But you might have like a PT assistant doing like ultrasound or they might have a massage therapist in the clinic who's actually doing the manual work. And that's not always the case. There's some PTs, especially who are in, uh, have like a small private clinic that kind of practice more like the way an acupuncturist would practice. Uh, obviously, I use acupuncture as part of the treatment, which most PTs don't use, although that's going to depend on the state. I don't have my my... Uh, treatment sessions turn into like exercise sessions. Like a lot of physical therapists, the patient comes to see them. The first thing they do is like put them on the exercise bike for 10 minutes to warm up the muscles. And then they spend most of the time doing all these things, having the patient do a bunch of exercises. Whereas, you know, as an acupuncturist, they're going to come see me. And most of the time the patient's just going to be laying there or sitting there and I'm doing stuff to them. But I think the the most interesting difference is in the, the difference between how most physical therapists and most acupuncturists are, what their relationship is with pain. So uh, I, was, I took a class, a couple of classes earlier this year in a particular type of, of acupuncture, although it's, it's called dry needling, but it's basically acupuncture that's taught to physical therapists and other Western medical providers to treat certain types of muscle conditions. And the class was full of, it was just PTs. It was like 20 PTs in me. The class was taught by a PT. They let you in. They actually they let, let me in. in. Oh. Yeah, and it was, it was really fascinating. And I got a huge amount out of the class. But one of the really fascinating things was that, and this is PTs talking about this to other PTs, that type of therapy historically, kind of focusing on muscle problems and trigger points, even in, in Western medicine has really been ignored or, or underrepresented, uh, underrepresented, given the, the vast number of people who actually have these types of problems, they tend to get looked, kind of overlooked in favor of looking at, you know, joint problems or um, things that can be fixed with surgery. And so they were trying to explain why historically there, haven't, there hasn't been as much of an emphasis on this type of uh, therapy. And they referred to a study that was done in 19, I think, 90 or 91, so it's a little bit outdated, and so I think it's changed a little bit since then, but the basic idea, I think, is sound. And it was asking physical therapists how comfortable or how interested in treating chronic pain they were, right? So how comfortable treating chronic pain are you, and how interested are you in treating chronic pain? And back then, so we're talking, you know, 25 years ago, the results showed that about 4% of physical therapists felt comfortable managing chronic pain with patients. You know, 4%. It's probably gotten a little bit higher than that since then. But that's like, PTs are not interested 
for the most part, in treating pain. They're interested in restoring function. Whereas in, as an acupuncturist, we are kind of specialists in pain and in dealing with pain to the point that a lot of acupuncturists I know really focus much more on just the pain and don't do anything to restore kind of the broader sense of function of a joint, you know, by prescribing exercises, things like that. So that's one of the big differences. And also with pain, there's also a huge difference between the attitudes towards painful sensations that occur during the treatment. PTs really do not care if the treatments that they're doing are kind of having you crying and howling in pain. It's just, you know, stuffing up, deal with it, right? Think back to, uh, was it uh, James Brady back during the, the Reagan administration who got shot when there was the assassination attempt on Reagan? I think it was Brady. Yes, it was. Yeah. And so how did he refer to his therapists, the physical therapists that uh, were treating him? He called them physical terrorists. Right. And that's kind of the all the reports I get from patients who come who've been to PT. It was like, yeah, it was just it hurt. It hurts so much. And as acupuncturists, we're almost pathologically averse to having any sense of discomfort in our treatment as as Western American acupuncturists. I know that is definitely not the case in China. Uh, they're much more willing to have patients, uh, you know, to do treatments that are very, very strong sensations. And so as a someone who focuses more on orthopedics and have a lot of teachers who do much more kind of aggressive and strong acupuncture treatments, I'm kind of somewhere in the middle. So there are certain things that I do that are definitely uncomfortable for patients. But, you know, I, by putting them in the right context to the patient and also giving them some sense of control over how intensely I'm doing the treatment, like, uh, like a gua sha, for instance, a technique where we're scraping the skin over an area often of the back or the neck or the hips with a, like a, some type of rounded object like a porcelain spoon or I use like jar lid sometimes. And you're doing it until the skin turns really red or at times even purple. Yeah, it looks like a road rash. Yeah. That, when you're doing that to treat a musculoskeletal problem, it really needs to be done pretty intensely and it can be a very uncomfortable experience. But if you give the patient control over when you start and stop, they are much more willing to put up with a lot of discomfort if they know that they're in control. And so I've found that, you know, striking that balance between having, giving the patient a sense of comfort and control while I'm able to do some things that are potentially very uncomfortable, including some types of needling where you're getting muscles to really jump and, and twitch a lot that can be very also uh, either painful or disconcerting. But patients actually will often come back and say, you know that thing you did last week that was like really painful? I, I think I need that again because it seemed to really help. So that uh, so that's one of the other main differences, whereas most of the patients I've talked to who've had experiences in PT that were very painful were just like, they just, they just caused me a lot of pain and I just couldn't take it anymore. So those are some of the, the main things. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a good explanation. Thank you. I've got one more question. Actually, I got a ton more questions. I may have to have you back for another show. That would be almost too much fun. It well, but you know, we we have to put up with these kinds of things. We have to practice, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, one last question, at least for this episode: Why is it that sometimes one acupuncture treatment is like magical? I mean, it totally transforms someone's situation, and. And then they come back for another treatment, and it's like, nah, it didn't do that much, right? Especially um, in a first treatment. Lots of times people will have some kind of really dramatic change. But then it's like there's a plateau that you've got to slog along until you get another, you know, really fundamental change. What are your thoughts about that? Oh, boy. Um, my first thought is... If I really understood the answer to that question, I would be a much more successful practitioner. <laughs> That's why I'm asking you. I'm looking for some help here. Well, let's, let's talk through this. I think there are actually several potential reasons for that. The first, uh, the first potential reason, and in a sense the most cynical reason, is that for a lot of patients, especially if there's a lot of emotion built up around their symptom, that there is this kind of placebo effect of relief of, especially if the, if the, uh, the intake goes really well and the patient all of a sudden has this overwhelming sense that finally someone gets me, 
finally someone has asked me the questions that I feel are relevant. Someone has actually touched me in a way that uh, reveals that they, they understand my body, what's going on with it. And all of that will tend to unravel the, the aspects of the patient's symptoms that are being exacerbated by the kind of emotional strain, the anxiety. And that has to do partly, so it's not, it's not so much placebo as I would say the, the kind of uh, neurological and, and psycho-emotional aspect of their pain. Uh, there's a really fabulous and at times almost depressing book called Back in Control by a physician, a spinal surgeon actually in Seattle named David Hanscom. And it's a book that's about the neurology of pain and the psychology of pain. And he's basically a, he's a neurosurgeon or a spinal surgeon who had his own bout of really severe low back pain. And it was chronic and he had surgeries that didn't help. And he was also noticing, and he also went through this long um, experience of, of severe depression. And he had all these patients who would come to him with back pain. He would do spinal fusions and they wouldn't get any better. Or the, you know, the fusions eventually end up breaking down and then the joints above and below the fusion end up wearing down because you're, you have to make up that movement somewhere else. And so he really got into the, the neurology and the psychology of pain. And there's an aspect of, especially chronic pain, of you know, once your nervous system starts experiencing something like a signal for pain, it kind of learns to keep that particular circuit open and it actually will physically strengthen that circuit by creating new neural pathways, right? Yes. Yeah. You get uh, maladaptive neuroplasticity. Exactly. And so in a sense, it's the same process that allows you to learn how to ride a bike and then not ride a bike for 15 years and get back on it. It's the same learning process. Like once the circuit is there, it's there. And so in cases of pain, what happens is you have some lesion, whether it's a, a bulging disc or a muscle problem or something that causes pain, it doesn't get resolved. You get into this the cycle of uh, the maladaptive neuroplasticity and now that pain signal is there and even after the original lesion is no longer a problem it gets healed it goes away whatever you still have all these other circuits that are basically creating like a, a ghost of the of the pain and that's a an entirely neurological process and so patients if they come in and that is the main issue sometimes the one of the general effects of acupuncture of balancing the sympathetic and the parasympathetic halves of the nervous system, like we talked about, is to turn the volume down on some of those circuits because they're going to be exacerbated by that sympathetic fight or flight response. And so in the cases where you have what seem like a really magical effect, it can be the case that there was some particular little aspect of the problem that just no one had ever solved. And if you just take care of that by putting in a few needles here or doing a manual technique here, that all of a sudden everything else falls into place. That certainly happens, and I've had that happen in the clinic. But it seems like uh, more often, especially with really chronic cases, especially when the symptoms tend to be a little bit more vague or the, they're not as, as pinpoint and obviously caused by a particular thing, that this sense of the, the nervous system is kind of keeping the pain alive. And when you can do things to calm that down, then patients will experience this overwhelming sense of relief, partly because of that, that change, that kind of increase in parasympathetic tone and the decrease of, like, of the volume of the, the nervous system. And then that often, it starts to either come back a little bit or it just they kind of get a certain amount of relief and they kind of don't get more relief for a while after that. It's because that process, those, those nerve circuits are still there. And it's a much longer process to try to attenuate those. You know, it's really a matter of trying to keep the body in a state where those circuits aren't being continually reactivated. And that's, so th solving that aspect of the chronic pain is a much longer process. And I've had some patients where I've just told them, I've explained to them what happens, you know, neurologically with them. And I've had a few patients where I just have to say, you know, I just feel like at this point, I'm not helping you as much. I think you should, you need to be doing some other things uh, whether it's uh, getting into like cognitive behavioral therapy, something else that I can't teach them how to do that will help address that better than I'm doing it. Those are, I think, probably the two biggest reasons why you sometimes get that initial, that initial amazing result and then kind of plateau a little bit. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. This, um, 
maladaptive neuroplasticity aspect I find really interesting because, you know, in some ways our body uses our neurology and wiring together neurons so that we have like quick access to certain experiences. And that can be very helpful like when we're driving a car or, you know, doing many things, right? We don't even have to think. We just, we just know. And yet that just knowing aspect can get wired in in a way that's, that's really not helpful. Yeah, and I think it's very helpful to think of that process in very neutral terms to realize that there's that ability of the body to cause those problems is the same as the ability of the body to learn things and remember them. And so it's ultimately there's some evolutionary advantage to our ability to do that. It's just that the the maladaptive part of it wasn't maladaptive enough to inhibit our ability to reproduce. And so it's like we're going to live with it. Which which brings us back to some of what the beginning of this conversation was in terms of uh, something I can't even remember right now. (laughs) (laughs) That's not helpful. Maladaptive memory neuroplasticity. Uh, Yeah. Well, it's age. What can I say? I did want to get back to that, but God, it just, it was like on the tip of my tongue and then it just slipped away. Anyway, I want to talk to you about fat. Yes. The use of fat, but you know what? We're out of time. So, Maybe we could do another show just on uh, on healthy fats. Yeah, let's do that. I okay. think uh, there are probably there's certainly I think there's some other guests that you've had uh, who are even more knowledgeable about me. But we can certainly have a, a show where, if nothing else, we just wax poetic on the beauty of healthy fats. Well, I'm not sure that the other people I've had on that that have talked about fats put on the white chef coat when they're cooking with those fats. Ah. Okay, well, we can certainly utilize that aspect of, uh, of my experience then. Excellent. Josh, as ever, it's been a total delight. This is just awesome fun. My, I'm really glad that you, uh, you asked me on the show. And uh, yeah, let's do this again. I hope you have enjoyed this episode of Everyday Acupuncture Podcast. If so please take a moment and visit www.everydayacupuncturepodcast.com where you can click on the review on iTunes button to rate and review the show. Doing this helps other people to find the show. Also, you can express your appreciation by supporting the show with a donation. Thanks for listening and be sure to tune in again next time.